0: we have spent a number of weeks now thinking through as a church what matters for Faith Community Church. We've had the blessing of hearing from all of our elders. I spent a a little time a few weeks ago talking about gospel matters. Randy uh, spoke to us about church matters. Before that, Joel, leadership matters. And of course, last week, uh, Tim on prayer matters. Today we want to add another important matter to that series, and that is mission. Mission matters. Now some of you may hear that and might immediately want, by reflex, to make that a plural. Missions matters. And it wouldn't be wrong to do that. We sometimes speak of missions with the plural, and when we do that, we generally are referring to certain efforts that we might have either locally or globally to spread the gospel, and it would be a worthy subject for us to take the time, uh, even this morning, to talk about all the things that we are involved with and all the ways that God is using this fellowship and this church to do great things around the globe. But today, I'm using the singular because I want to focus our attention on a more fundamental issue on really one that needs to be understood before we ever speak about the specific of missions, we need to address the issue of mission. In other words, before we really speak about the specifics of how we might work in different ways around the the world, we really need to stop and ask the basic question of what we're trying to do. Really, what are we called to do? What is our mission? It's not a foreign concept in our culture and society. Most of you are are involved with some organization at some level that probably has thought through this and developed what we sometimes call a mission statement. Companies all across America invest hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to try to arrive at these kinds of things and then to communicate them whether to their employees or to their constituency or whatever, because they have a sense that to the level that they can do that, to that same level, they'll be effective. But when it comes to the church, what is our mission? What are we trying to accomplish? How can we clarify that? So that we would meet that standard of effectiveness. Whether you've ever thought about it or not, we, we need to address this as one of the most important matters of the church, because there are, there are those who write papers and blogs and books, that host conferences that send out all kinds of envoys that have created a lot of confusion. Some people have formulated all kinds of divergent ideas about what the mission Of the church is all about and you may have heard some of this whether you realize it or not people frequently say things such as this our job is to get the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world that sounds wonderful enough except for the fact that when you begin to ask people what they mean by the whole gospel or even the whole world or even the whole church you soon realize that they have packaged all sorts of things in their minds, all kinds of baggages uh, and assumptions with those terms. In that statement, the whole uh, church taking the whole gospel to the whole world, is actually a slogan that came out of a conference in, in Lausanne, France in 1974, a well-known conference called the Lausanne Congress for World Evangelism. And it's had a huge impact on the worldwide church ever since 1974, and particularly in its understanding of missions. And it continues even till today. In fact, in 2010, a group convened a conference around these same ideals and in in line with the same principles to clarify what it is that the church ought to be about. Papers were delivered on what we should think about the whole church or the whole gospel or the whole world. For example, in some of these papers, the whole world was defined not as the physical world or the world of human race or nations or languages or even religions, but it was, they said, to include the world of violence and the world of poverty and the world of injustice and the world of uh, of the globalized public square. And so the mission of the church They concluded from these papers was to make every effort to address continuing global poverty and economic injustice or the negative effects of globalization or the threat of nuclear disaster or the dangers of terrorism or all of its underlying causes or the stoking of ethnic and religious uh, division. Or the challenges of population growth in huge urban centers around the world. Or the destruction of the natural environment and human-generated climate change that is affecting the world's poorest people. Or the onslaught and scourge of HIV AIDS. Or cultures of violence that pervade society at domestic and international levels. Papers delivered on every one of those things. One of the papers concluded this, quote, any theology of mission must take such global realities into account in discerning what it means to address the whole gospel to the whole world. When we talk about the world, we cannot only think numerically about all the people who live in the world. We must think contextually about all that is in the world that impacts the lives of individuals, the social structures that shape them, and the physical environment upon which they depend, end quote. Well, that sort of begs the question framed probably best in the words of Bishop Stephen Neal of the Anglican Church when he says, if if then everything is mission, then nothing is mission. If everything is mission, then nothing is mission. In other words, when we speak about mission, if the something that we're trying to do is everything then we'll end up doing nothing. No effective company would ever adopt such a broad and widely wielding mission statement. It's not to say that we rejoice when we see social injustice or terrorism or pollution or poverty or disease or whatever. But we need to ask ourselves a basic question when it comes to the church. Is that our mission? Is that what we are supposed to be doing? Or maybe a ba- basic question, how do we know anyway what we're supposed to be doing? The, the, does every church just sort of have its prerogative to make up whatever their mission is? Or do, do we have some source that would tell us, where do we get our idea of what our mission is? Confusion on the issue, unfortunately, has led to a lot of futility in the efforts of the church and has led to a negative impact on the fruitfulness of the church. People latch on to the hopes of, of the potential of changing the world if we can just all get together and work together for all of these causes. And so that over the last 50 or 60 years, people have participated in a broader and broader range of activities that go under the label of missions. Helping folks with... Clean water initiatives, helping people with medical needs, building homes, building orphanages, digging wells, whatever it might be. People are doing all sorts of things under this banner of of missions, and none of it is necessarily evil or bad, but they don't ever seem to stop and ask the basic question, is that our mission? Is that what we have been called to do? Or if they do ask the question, they may never ask the more fundamental question of whether or not the Bible clearly answers that question. Well, the Bible does give an answer, and it's important for us to understand clearly what it says. It's important for us to clear up any confusion when it comes to our mission, because mission really does matter. And to do that, I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to Matthew 28, one of the most familiar and fundamental passages of all Scripture. It's become known as the Great Commission, and it's recorded in one way or another in all four of the Gospels. Matthew's version, as I said, has become the most well-known, and yet probably still the most misunderstood. But let me begin just by reading it for us, beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 28. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we don't have time to dive to the deepest level of this passage in all of its richness, but we need to understand the basic components of what is given to us here because it clearly defines for us the mission of the church, our mission. And Matthew has his way of punctuating the importance of this statement when he places it as the very final thing is in his entire gospel. The last words, if you will, that he puts on the lips of Christ for us. This isn't actually the final moment of Jesus' life. In fact, um, we we know, as we've already seen, that Jesus calls his disciples here to go up to Galilee to meet him on this mountain. And it's on this mountain that He delivers these words to them. All of this, of course, after His resurrection. But this will not be His final appearance. In fact, He'll spend another several weeks with the the disciples and with His followers, teaching them before He finally ascends into heaven. He'll ultimately send them back down to Jerusalem and He'll meet them again there. And in an upper room, Luke records for us a separate meeting that takes place in Luke 24. Jesus appears to them and he says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem you are witnesses of these things and behold i'm sending the promise of my father upon you stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high and then again at the beginning of the book of acts luke records for us that after he was in the upper room with them that he then takes them further out to the Mount of Olives. And when he's on the Mount of Olives, he says to them again, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and into the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. I think it's safe to say that Jesus wanted to make sure that these early disciples got the message. We have a mission. We have a mission. And it's a clearly defined mission. And we can look at really all of these and and blend them together, but I want to just turn us back to Matthew 28 to take note of what I believe is given to us there, the basic components of what... Jesus gave His disciples to do. He took them up on this mountain right after His resurrection to deliver this message. It was a mountain, and this is typical whenever you read in the Bible when some important announcement or some important uh, you know, commissioning is given... It's typically done up on a mountain, whether it was uh, God taking Abraham and Isaac up on a mountain or Moses going up on a mountain to receive the Ten Commandments or Jesus with the Sermon on the Mount. Here, Jesus takes them up to a mountain to give them this directive. And as He gives it, we could take note of four components of this scene, this mission that help us to clarify our task. The first one, we could simply call this, the crew that includes you. The crew that includes you. And we don't need to spend a lot of time here, but it's helpful for us to just take note of who was initially given this mission. These were the ones who hear this command to go and proclaim His message to all the nations this initial band of laborers that are sent out into the harvest and Matthew describes it in verse 16 the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain Jesus had directed them and when they saw him they worshiped him but some doubted now Matthew mentions the 11 there and you might be given the impression that this is the apostles minus Judas who has betrayed Jesus at this point that this is just the 12 of them but if you go back to verse 10, you'll notice that there were many more because they were told to invite others to this scene. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 15, probably referring to this event, tells us that there were some 500 people on this mountain at this point. So these were a group of believers who were obeying the Lord and going to the place that He instructed him them and He meets them there and they worship Him. But then they have this this interesting note that even they who have obeyed the Lord, even they who are giving Him genuine worship, all the signs that they're true believers, even still Matthew tells us that there were some who doubted. It's probably better translated hesitated. It's only used twice in the New Testament here, one other place in Matthew. It's not the typical word for doubt, so probably some idea of hesitation. There was a little uncertainty amongst this group. Matthew doesn't elaborate on what it is that they're unsure about. They could be unsure that this is really Jesus that they're seeing, that maybe this is some some sort of apparition or something. Or it could be that they're a little unsure about whether or not this was a good idea to be meeting out in public like this whenever their leader had just been captured and crucified by the Roman government. Or maybe they're just really uncertain about how they're supposed to respond to all of this stuff. Just unsure about what they are supposed to do. But whatever it is, they're hesitant. And the point is that Jesus calls this group together, this group who includes the eleven, but also includes all these others. And this was the group to whom He gave this command. And they were not a select group of the daring, the valiant, superhuman beings. They were not completely fearless or particularly determined at this point. And yet it was the group to whom Jesus gave this mission. A mission that's been passed down to us. And I'm grateful for what it's worth that Matthew included this little note of hesitation, whatever it meant, because it reassures me that those whom the Lord uses will not be perfect. They will not always be undaunted. They will not always be triumphant. There will at times be... Some hesitation in their hearts. But they still go where the Lord commands them to go. They still have a sense that He deserves their worship. They still hear His call. This is a crew that includes you. Every believer, no matter where they are in their spiritual life, has received this command, this mission, this call on their life. Secondly, we see Jesus giving credentials that are good everywhere. I mean, this is, this is great. Jesus says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And you can't miss the comprehensive nature of this. It is authority in heaven and it's authority on earth. Authority from on high. It's over and above any other authority you'll ever encounter. It supersedes, it overrules all of them. No matter where you go, no matter what the people think who are there about you, you have been authorized to speak. You've been given a license. You have been given all the endorsement that you will ever need. You don't need any documentation. You don't need any kind of of paperwork you have all authority in, in heaven and on earth standing behind you as you go to speak. And this note of authority, no doubt, is intended to stand in contrast to the hesitation that some of these people were feeling. They may have been hesitant, they might have been doubtful, but Jesus wants to assure them of not only who He is and what He sends them to do, And what they're instructed to do. But that they are committed with all authority to do it. And so there's no reason to have hesitation. Jesus of course understood that this would be their biggest barrier. Their biggest struggle. They knew Christ. They had come to know Him by personal uh, encounter with Him through the Holy Spirit. Many of them have... A clear testimony they would have because they had experienced the transforming work of Christ. They understood the gospel in its basic sense. That was not their struggle. It very rarely is. The biggest struggle in obeying this command will be getting out of the uncertainty about whether or not you should be speaking. Speaking. We're not uncertain of whether Jesus has commanded us to go, but sometimes we're uncertain about whether those to whom we're speaking will approve. And Jesus is erasing all of that concern by saying, you don't need anyone's approval. He has all authority and He has granted us approval to speak. Now this isn't an endorsement to speak unwisely or untactfully. We know from other places in Scripture that we need to speak or we need to walk in wisdom toward unbelievers and our speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that we ought to know how to speak to each person. Paul says in Colossians 4.6 But to say that we should speak with wisdom is not to say that we should give in to the fear of approval or that we should be seeking out Necessarily any person's approval. We have our approval. We have been granted permission to speak because we have it from the one who has all authority to grant that approval. The best timing, the best environment, those are issues of discernment and judgment, but there's no reason not to be deliberate, premeditated, calculated, and intentional in your conversations because you have a mandate. And all authority to speak on these issues. A third component of this mission helps us to clarify our task as well. Really in verse 19. And that is the command that defines the task. The command that defines the task. And this is really, this is the real issue at hand. Jesus tells us exactly what our mission is in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. You may or may not know this, but while we have a number of verbs in our English Bible, go and make and baptize and teach, there's really only one verb in the Greek, one main verb, and that is the word mathatusate, make disciples. Make disciples. That is the command. That is the commission. And every other uh, verbal form in the Greek are really dependent verbs. What we call participles In, in, in grammatical terms. They are simply defining the process of how the main verb is to be carried out. We are making disciples which will involve going and baptizing and teaching. As I said, this really gets to the heart of what we're supposed to do. This really defines our mission. If we were a pancake house, we might mount somewhere on our wall that our mission is to make the best pancakes in town. And then if we were to start trying to make burgers or sell produce or repair automobiles then we would eventually fail in being the best pancake house in town. Or if we were a financial services institution, we might print up on our our brochures and our cards that we provide investment advice and service to our clients, helping them protect and grow their capital and meet their long-term financial goals. Then, if we begin to try to be a fitness gym or a travel agency or a package delivery service, we would fail at being the best option for people who are looking for financial services. But we're a church, and our mission is to make disciples. How do we do that? By going, by baptizing. And by teaching. So whatever we may be doing, it needs to be focused on that. On that mission. And to the extent that our focus becomes battling the threat of nuclear disaster. Or addressing the dangers of terrorism. Or trying to stem the tide of global injustice. Or, or addressing the issue of sanitation in whatever place or population growth in urban centers or, or the scourge of HIV, AIDS, or whatever it might be. To the extent that we become diverted into all of those things, we lose our focus on the mission of being disciple makers. As Dave Doran says in his excellent book, For the Sake of His Name, in fulfilling this mission, we need to consider two important questions What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And how are disciples of Jesus made? And he answers the question with, first of all, a number of contrasts. Saying, first of all, that the Great Commission is aimed at producing disciples, not decisions. The Great Commission is aimed at producing disciples, not decisions. Doran says this, It is certainly true that becoming Christ's disciple occurs at a decisive point in time and through a decision to receive Christ. But one of the sad evidences of a defective and unbiblical mission strategy has been the tendency to be satisfied with evangelistic decisions that yield no lasting fruit or transformation in the lives of those who have supposedly received Jesus Christ. End quote. We are to make disciples. And in the case uh, of those who may have any doubt about that, Jesus clearly tells us what that is in, for example, John 8: If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. So our goal is at a fundamental level, ought to be to produce people who continue in the word of Christ. Or Dave Doran says, sometimes we reduce our mission to a transaction rather than a transformation. Getting, in other words, people to accept a few facts about Jesus rather than have Him accepted as the Lord of their life. Well, Jesus makes clear that our mission is not just transactional, it's transformational. It is producing disciples. How? He tells us exactly how. It involves, first of all, going. Which at the very least implies active movement outward. He doesn't really define how far You are to go, but we clearly understand that we shouldn't be staying. Uh, There is some, we might say, implied activity. This command, in other words, cannot be fulfilled by indifference or non-participation. We must always be pushing outward at the very least, beyond relationships that are familiar to us, beyond normal routines in our life, beyond places of comfort that we have settled into. We've got to be looking beyond wherever we are. We can't make new disciples if we're content to simply surround ourselves with those who already are disciples. Secondly, Jesus says we're to be baptizing, which implies faith and repentance because this is what baptism gives testimony to. This is is the laying aside of the old life and the renewal in new life. That's what it means when you go through the waters of baptism. You give public testimony to the fact that that's taken place in your life. And if you had any doubt about that, Being a part of your message, Luke makes it utterly clear in his version of the commission when he says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. That this is fundamental to what we're doing. We're proclaiming this message of repentance and faith. And then thirdly, Jesus says that one of our methods of making these disciples is going to be teaching. We are to teach all that Jesus commanded, which makes it clear that Jesus has in mind much more than some sort of temporary effort, some initial evangelistic response. He wants mature, obedient disciples. And that means that among all the activities in which we might engage, the most central And vital would be the establishment of long-term enterprises focused on establishing obedient Christians, which in biblical terms we know of as a church. This is the work of local churches. And so we understand in terms of local outreach... That our focus cannot be turned aside to any number of noble or meaningful issues of social responsibility. I mean, we certainly feel compelled from time to time to get involved with whatever might be affecting our environment or our life or the well-being of others. We might even take up the cause of global nuclear uh, threats or AIDS research or victimization of certain peoples or whatever it might be. But as a body of Christ... Our focus is on the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Christ, the calling of people to repent and believe in that, and the teaching of them everything that Jesus commanded. In terms of international outreach, this means our focus can't be turned aside to issues like economic or social assistance efforts But it must be focused on the establishment of long-term discipleship in the form of indigenous, self-perpetuating churches. That's our mission. We may engage from time to time in any number of efforts along the way that enhance that ultimate goal. But if we ever lose sight of the goal, we have begun to wander off the pathway of fruitfulness. That the Lord has clearly given to us. And we're in danger of forfeiting the promises of His blessings. Which is our fourth component in this mission that helps us clarify our task. And that is a confidence. A confidence that never fails. Jesus promised that as we endeavor to obey this clear command, we will experience the blessings of His backing and His power. He says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age to the extent that we are engaged in this he is with us by the way jesus certainly wasn't preparing his disciples with any kind of expectation that this would be a sort of quick and dirty process he didn't say anything that would make them imagine that this would take any less effort than their absolute labor until the end of the age Because He promises to be with us throughout that entire time. He promises His presence, which is intended to give us confidence. You see this in a few places of Scripture. When Jesus gives a challenging task, He promises to be there with you or with us, giving us confidence to move forward in it. For example, when Jesus gives the church the responsibility of maintaining and guarding the purity within the fellowship, He tells us, look, if there are unrepentant believers in your midst, you have to, you have to confront the sin that's there. And you have to confirm that, that, that unrepentant stance of the person on the basis of two or three witnesses. But if, He says, you do that, Where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I will be in your midst. Jesus understood how difficult of a task that would be, and so he wanted to bolster the church with this confidence that they were engaging in what was the Lord's will, that they were doing what was going to be a difficult task to do, but they were never alone in the task. He wanted to reassure them of His, not only endorsement, but His power. Not only that, not not only His presence with us, but Luke would add this. When Jesus sent them out, He says, Behold, I'm sending you forth. The promise of My Father will be upon you, and you will stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That, of course, is a promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he uses this image of being clothed to talk about kind of the totality and the completeness. And all of this reflective of the power of the Spirit that's coming upon us, the, the complete power of the Spirit to be with us. And what does the Spirit do? Well, we know at the very least, John tells us that he brings conviction. That He brings conviction when we preach the Word of God. We know that He brings power through the Word to change the hearts of people. He makes it effectual in their hearts. And so we have confidence because we have the promise of the Spirit's power and we have the presence of Christ together with us. We can go boldly moving past all of our natural hesitations knowing that we have all authority, all the credentials we need wherever we go in the world, that we are to call people to follow Christ, to be His disciples, and then to stay, to make sure that they do everything that Jesus commanded them to do. I don't know if you've ever taken on Challenging tasks. But those tasks uh, are overwhelming if for no other reason because you doubt your resources. You don't know whether or not you have the time or the money or the knowledge or the skill to pull it off. But what Jesus is promising to us is all the resource you need. Him, the Holy Spirit. They'll be with you. So our mission matters. And we need to make sure that we're clear on what it is. If necessary, we can hang it on the wall. We can print it on our whatever. But it really isn't complicated. It only becomes complicated whenever we mix our agendas in with God's. Our mission is to make disciples. And to teach them everything that Jesus commanded. May the Lord help us. May He grant us grace that we never get distracted. Never get consumed with whatever temporal concerns might be pressing against our mind and hearts. That we would give ourselves to this. And be fruitful in it for the sake of His name. Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for this reminder, and it is clear enough, you have granted it to us with such simplicity, and yet understanding the daunting nature you have promised to us us all the resources of your own presence and your spirit. Help us then, Lord. We confess to you our occasional hesitation, but may we be emboldened by your credentials. By your authority to speak with intentional, with well thought out, with calculated precision. To go out of our way into the lives of others. Making disciples. When we do that Lord we'll bring joy to your heart. We'll bring fruitfulness and purpose to our lives. And we will magnify Your name in which we pray. Amen.